Turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Matthew. Gospel of Matthew chapter 11. We have really dug deep into Matthew's Gospel, haven't we? We're not even halfway through yet. We're getting there. So this has been for me personally as a pastor a great um, a great study for myself and for my soul. And I do pray that it's been the same for you. I pray that as we exposit God's Word, that you would receive what God needs for you to see, that He wants for you to understand wherever you are in your walk with the Lord. Today we are in Matthew chapter 11, and it's it's an interesting chapter. Chapter 11 of Matthew's Gospel actually begins a new section of the Gospel that showcases the life and the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. We've clearly seen in the previous chapters that Jesus is no ordinary man. And Matthew wants to make sure we see that. That is his message to us in this work. Matthew proclaimed boldly who Jesus was, and the first ten chapters of this gospel is laying the groundwork to remind us all who Jesus is. He is not just a Nazarene. He's someone more, and that the groundwork is now laid. If you recall back in chapter 3, Matthew introduces Jesus' ministry by introducing John the Baptist, and his message was simple. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now when we come to Matthew chapter 11, this this gospel now shifts. Matthew 11 and 12 now introduce who Jesus is, but in the context of how people react to him when they encounter him. That's what we're going to look at for the next several weeks in chapters 11 and 12. So if you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's word as we read Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Wow. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we are grateful for your word. And as we see here in this text, one of your servants, the greatest of all prophets, John, sends word through his disciples to clarify and to confirm that maybe he's not done the wrong thing, that maybe he has done the right thing by proclaiming your word and preparing those who hear his message for Jesus. And so God, this morning, many of us in this room may be in the same mindset that John the Baptist seems to be here. We may have doubts. God, I pray that your word would comfort our souls. And I pray, God, that your word would inspire us to put more faith and, and to, to trust you even more so in the midst of, of confusion and doubt. Use this time, Lord, for your glory. And please, dear Lord, 
love us with your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. I think it's appropriate here that in Matthew chapter 11, Matthew introduces this new section of his work with John the Baptist. Because if you remember at the beginning of the Matthew's uh, gospel, and especially in chapter 3, he introduces Jesus and his ministry with John the Baptist. So I think it's appropriate to introduce John the Baptist one more time here. But this time John is in prison. His followers were, they're undoubtedly fearful and perhaps in doubt of what they've been doing. They've been following John the Baptist. You know, John the Baptist had his disciples just like Jesus had his disciples. Many, some of the disciples of Jesus came from John's ministry. They followed John first and then went to Jesus, not as a competition, but as it naturally should be. And so now it's possible as we come to Matthew chapter 11, that John himself is struggling in doubt while sitting in prison. Very possible that his disciples were also struggling with doubt. What have we committed our life to? Did we make a mistake? So now we see this scene where John is sitting in prison. Verses 2 and 3 reads this, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? We know that John is sent to prison. Matthew chapter 14 tells us why, and we'll get to that here soon. But this is almost a little foreshadowing of the scene. We know that in Matthew chapter 14, we read the account where John, he was the irritant to Herod. Y'all ever have somebody in your life who is just that irritant in your life, good or bad? We all need someone who loves us enough to tell us the truth, correct? John the Baptist was God's instrument to be that irritant to stir the people to repentance. And John knew his ministry. He was called to a particular bold message, and he did not hesitate to tell it like it was. Y'all, anybody in this room like to tell it like it is, and your mouth gets you into a lot of trouble? Yep. And I'm, I'm, I'm raising my hand here, confessing with you. John's ministry, he was actually expected by God to do this. So maybe if those of us who get in trouble by saying it like it is, maybe that's, that's why we do so. God has called us to say it like it is. Amen? Not always we get in trouble, but John the Baptist, we see, he was bold. He called sin, sin. He was that crazy preacher who was bold enough to go to Herod and say, Herod, you're wrong. His wife, it was crazy. Got to tell it like it is. So John the Baptist, we know this, John the Baptist was a faithful servant of the kingdom of God. No doubt. So now here in Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 to 3, perhaps John is sitting in prison and he's reflecting on the events that transpired in his ministry. He was called to preach repentance. And we see pretty clearly here in verse 2, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sends word by his disciples to Jesus. I mean, there's something about sitting in prison that gives you a lot of time to reflect. I've never sat in prison. I'm not going to ask if anyone here has sat in prison. That's a different conversation we can have in private. 
But Jesus, John the Baptist, he's sitting in prison and he's reflecting on the events that transpired in this ministry of his, this ministry of repentance. I think maybe he's also pondering the reports of Jesus's ministry and he's getting these reports from his own disciples who clearly have access to him while he's in prison. And his disciples are bringing reports to him about what Jesus is doing. So what is clear in this text is that John the Baptist is expressing doubt. Man of God, the prophet of all prophets that we will see here soon. So what we see here, I think we can take away from this text is that doubt is part of a believer's journey. Doubt is not part of an unbeliever's journey. We can look at this text and see, I mean, no one would look at John the Baptist and say that he missed it. In no way did John the Baptist miss the calling on his life. In no way did John the Baptist become unfaithful to his Lord. In no way. And so we have to look at this and see that doubt is part of a believer's journey. Doubt has nothing to do with the unbeliever. Because if faith is the glue that binds us to the truth that Jesus Christ redeems us with his blood, the doubt is the test of that bond. Without genuine faith or confidence in Jesus Christ, there's not going to be any opportunity to second guess that bond of faith. So I think the fact that John the Baptist is doubting here is evidence that he is still faithful to the Lord. Without, without the faith, there would be nothing to doubt. If you have no faith in Christ and you express doubt, what are you doubting? It doesn't make sense. So John the Baptist is experiencing some doubt because he's genuine. He is sincerely connected to Jesus. He is sincerely fulfilling his ministry of proclaiming Jesus Christ to the masses. And so John the Baptist is called by Jesus here as the greatest man to ever live. We see that down in verse 11. We'll get to that here pretty soon. But in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, here's what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So Jesus here in in verse 11, it confirms who who John the Baptist was. He is not losing his faith, but he doubts. The perplexity dealt with in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 11 are those of a genuine believer. I'm I'm convinced of this. It's, It's a faithful servant to the kingdom who is pondering his last days on this earth. Did I serve my Lord well? Have I missed something? But what is John perplexed over? I mean, what what is the cause of his doubt? I I don't see here that John questioned his service to God as far as he failed. If he had, then perhaps he would not be the man that Jesus describes him to be. But instead, I think John may have been perplexed about how the ministry was turning out. I I don't sense here that John doubted that he he did the wrong thing. I think what he's seeing here is, how is this ministry turning out? This ministry may not be turning out the way I expected it to, so I'm I'm, I'm just wondering, did I do the right thing, and and, and is it leading to the right outcome? Is it leading to the right outcome? I think he's really perplexed about how his ministry went 
and, and what Jesus' ministry is looking like. Perhaps John falls into the same error that many of the followers of Jesus Christ of his day felt. They, they thought they had a preconceived understanding of who Jesus would be, who the Messiah would be, and what the outcome would be. And perhaps John had some of these questions in his mind as well. A true child of God, I think, will often question why certain events result the way they do. That's common in the faith. Dear Lord, I thought I was following you. And this is not what I expected. Did I miss it? Is the outcome what you want, Lord? Have I somehow failed this? Because I thought it was going to turn out a different way. That's, I think, what John is pondering here. Because he's, he's getting reports of Jesus and his ministry, and these reports don't seem to align with what John may have perceived, or clearly maybe John's disciples perceived as well. I think John's question from prison is a question of uncertainty about his understanding of what his call was. Remember that John was called to prepare or, or to be that herald of the coming king. And so his questions were not a doubt of who Jesus was, but more so I think his questions may have been of, of how Jesus was conducting his ministry. There were things happening that John sought explanation for, he wanted confirmation for, and John, I think, was seeking help from Jesus to overcome his doubt here. That's why he sends his disciples to ask the question. But I think what we also see here is that, that John is, he, he's coming to Jesus with these questions just as we see in other parts of the Gospels, we cannot overcome our doubt. We cannot overcome our struggles without help from Him, Jesus Himself. And John, I think, is expressing here exactly that. When we look at Mark chapter 9, we see the story of a father of a demon-possessed boy coming to Jesus, asking Jesus to, to cast out the demons from his son. And what does Jesus do? Jesus asks the common question, do you believe that I can do this? Of course, there's a little bit of doubt with this father. And this father says in Mark chapter 9, verse 24, I do believe, help my unbelief. And maybe that's what John is doing here. He's sending questions through his disciples. And he says here in verse 3, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? I don't think it's a, it's not a sin here that John is expressing. It's help me, Jesus, to confirm what you've told me. Look here at verse three when he says, are you the one to come? Other translations say, are you the expected one? This is a very common question and it refers to something very profound. The question of John's disciples reflect this centuries old longing for the Messiah. Are you the one to come? From as early as Eve's curse in Genesis chapter 3, do you remember that? There was a promised Redeemer who would put all things right again. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, there was a promise that there would be somebody come. Someone would come and fix this problem. Now the idea of the one to come, or some translations the expected one, this was a common designation for the Messiah. We see this in the Old Testament. The title is first seen in Psalm chapter 40, verse 7, and then we see it again in Psalm 118. But also we see this idea of the one to come in many other places of the Psalms and in the prophetic writings. The one to come. In Psalm 40, verses 7 through 8, here's what we see. 
Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will. O my God, I have come. In Psalm 118, verse 26, it says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now we could go, we could stand here for hours and go through the list of all these different references of the one to come that you see all throughout the Psalms, all throughout the prophetic writings. Isaiah specifically, we're going to look at that here in a little bit, really drove home this thought of the one to come. The expected one. But this is what he says here in the latter half of his question in Matthew 11, verse 3. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Are you the one to come? Or do we look somewhere else? This latter half of this question, I think, seems to indicate that John's expectations about the Messiah were somehow unfulfilled. In other words, his expectations got ahead of his faith. Anybody ever fall, uh, have a fault with that? Anybody fall into that? My expectations get ahead of my faith. I think this is what John is wrestling with. His expectations about the Messiah aren't looking the way that they're actually looking because he's getting responses here from Jesus and what he's doing. He was in the same state of mind as many of the other doubters of Jesus' day. And John knew that what he preached was true. He knew that the Holy Spirit had called him and prepared him and spoke through him to the point that he's now in prison and facing death. You don't get that far in your ministry unless you're confident that you're called to this. So he's asking, was all this in vain? This outcome doesn't look like what I thought it would be. And the Messiah here, John is coming from this perspective that the Messiah was prophesied to come in judgment. And if you remember John's ministry, it was a ministry of judgment. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he calls people vipers and snakes. And he goes to Herod, of all people. Let's be like somebody walking up to the White House and barging into the uh, Oval Office and telling Joe Biden, you're a sinner. I don't think you'd last very long. I think Secret Service would take care of you pretty quick, wouldn't they? John the Baptist didn't care. <laughs> he told Herod, this is what's going on. This is how you're wrong. And I'm here to tell you from God himself, stop it. And now he's in prison. Was it all in vain? So when he looks, when, when John's ministry of judgment is compared to Jesus's ministry, it doesn't quite line up a little bit. I mean, there were, there were, there were appropriate times in the gospels where we see that Jesus is passing judgment, but what is Jesus's ministry mostly expressing? What is his ministry doing? Jesus's ministry clearly did not look very judgmental to John. The one to come, the expected one, was to execute judgment according to the prophets. So what kind of, what, how do we see this? When we look at verse 2, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, or some translations may see about the works of the Christ, Jesus was out there working. While John's sitting in prison, and even we can even indicate here when we go back to verse 1, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12, remember chapter 10 was Jesus was sending his 12 disciples out um, on a special ministry. Perhaps during this season, while his disciples were ministering, you know, two by two and in groups, doing their, their ministry, they called him. Maybe Jesus goes and does some solo teaching for a bit. Perhaps. 
But we see here that Jesus doesn't take a break. In other words, I'm sending out my disciples to do the work so now I can sleep. No, Jesus continues to teach. He continues to work. Jesus will do this. He's gonna, he is gonna be passing judgment, but until that time, his earthly ministry is gonna look different. And John the Baptist, he did not see or hear actions of judgment. Instead, John's disciples reported to John while he was in prison everything that Jesus was doing. And in, in verse one, we saw that, that indicates that Jesus did work. He taught. He preached in the cities or the villages. And whenever he would go there, traditionally, he would go to the synagogues. Because it was very common for, for traveling rabbis, visiting rabbis, when they would come into a village or a town, they were welcomed into the synagogue to read from the scrolls. The primary purpose of the synagogues was to read from God's word and to listen. This is why we still have this tradition here at Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. Listening to God's word, explaining God's word, studying God's word is the center of God's people gathering. We see it in the synagogues. And Jesus did this often. He would go to the synagogues and he would read, read from the scrolls. But Jesus also, while he was doing this, he did many other things besides teaching. He also healed the sick and he cast out demons. Healing the sick and casting out demons is not necessarily passing judgment in the perspective that John the Baptist and many others would have expected the Messiah to do. So John is honestly asking the question, are you really the Messiah that I've been preaching about or are we expecting someone else? When we look at Matthew chapter 11, let's drop down to verses 4 and 5. Here's Jesus' answer to John. And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. Now, now Jesus is responding to the question. He understood. You're asking Am I the one to come? Let me tell you what I'm doing and you figure it out. Jesus says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. That's his answer. It's not, well, who are you, John, to question me? You, you of little faith. Remember, Jesus would say that to his disciples. Oh, ye of little faith, when are you going to grow up? He doesn't respond to John that way. He responds with Scripture. What's he saying? Jesus comforts John with the words from Isaiah chapter 35 and actually one little line from Isaiah chapter 61. Let's turn over to Isaiah 35, if you can. Isaiah 35. We're going to read verses Four through six. This is what Jesus was referring to. The words of the, Isaiah, of the prophet Isaiah say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come. There you go. There's the language of the one to come. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Verse five. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. You notice in Isaiah 35 verse 4, there is the language of behold, your God will come. But he comes 
with vengeance, judgment. But what does that look like? It looks like, and it begins here in verse 5, as He will come to save you. Here's what it looks like. When He comes to save you, eyes of the blind will be opened. Ears of the deaf will be opened. And the, the lame man will leap and walk. The tongue of the mute will sing for joy. It's not that... Not that the the mute person will now be able to just talk. The mute person will sing joy to the one who healed him. That is what the one who comes does. And Jesus is responding to John the Baptist from Isaiah's prophecy. Yes, the one will come. Your God will come. And when he comes, he saves you. And here's what salvation looks like. You're not going to be blind anymore. You're not going to be deaf anymore. You're not going to be lame anymore. You're not going to be silent anymore. And then if you flip over to Isaiah 61, Jesus also adds this little bit to his answer to John the Baptist. Isaiah 61, looking at verses 1, actually verse 1. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Isn't that a direct word to John the Baptist? He's here to proclaim the good news to the poor. He's here to proclaim liberty to those who are captive in prison. John, you're sitting in prison. Do you not see? I'm still doing the work I have come to do. I am here to preach the gospel to the poor. I am here to rescue and liberate those who are in shackles and chains. That's the response of Jesus to his cousin, John. (laughs) John the Baptist. So if there was any doubt left in the minds of either John sitting in prison or the two disciples he sends to Jesus, and I think Jesus pointing to Scripture and looking at the prophets, I think this shows exactly what his actions were doing. You see this? He, Jesus was fulfilling the prophecies. He was fulfilling the Scriptures by being the one to come. And John the Baptist would have understood this. His disciples would have understood this. They would have been hearing the prophecies of old for their whole lives, from their childhood all the way up, looking for the one to come. And Jesus is saying, I'm here. I'm here. I'm not the one you thought was coming, but I'm the one who came. I'm the one who is healing the brokenhearted. I'm the one who is bringing sight to the blind. I'm the one who is preaching to the poor, just as Isaiah said I would. You see how John the Baptist is receiving confirmation from Jesus. Jesus is not telling John, oh, you of little faith, you are right on target. Let me remind you from my word, my prophet Isaiah said this, and here's what I'm doing. He was fulfilling his ministry of the gospel. He was fulfilling the ministry of the good news. He was fulfilling exactly what God the Father intended for him to do. Amen? So John the Baptist, after hearing this response of Jesus in verse 5, he may have also been 
preparing his disciples to carry on with Jesus after his own beheading. I think this is probably part of what's going on too. Not only is John experiencing doubt, perhaps his disciples were experiencing doubt as well. John understanding his his destiny, his future end of death, it was coming. He didn't want to leave his students behind uncared for. And John's ministry was to point to the Christ. And John, knowing that he could no longer lead his disciples, he sends them to Jesus with this question so that they could clearly see, here's where Jesus was sending us, or here's where John was sending us all along. John the Baptist, I think, preparing his disciples to carry on with Jesus after his own death. I think that's part of what's going on here too. And John must have known that his time was short. And and again, his last act of instruction as the master teacher was to send his disciples to Jesus to alleviate even their doubts. If John's ministry was to prepare many for the arrival of the Messiah, then his disciples, they needed reassurance and confirmation as well on who this Messiah would be. So when we come to verse 6, I think this is part of what Jesus is saying. I don't know that verse 6 is necessarily words directly to John. I think it's more so perhaps for his disciples. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I don't think we see here that John was offended. Because when we see the following verses in chapter 11, Jesus proclaims John so greatly. I think he's reassuring his, his disciples now. Don't be offended Listen to John, your teacher. He sent you the right direction. <laughs> right? And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Remember the words of Jesus here. And actually, look back at Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 to 33. Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 to 33. Remember, Jesus taught this. He said, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. I think Jesus here is sending John's disciples back to him with this reassurance. Don't be offended by me. Those who are, who, those who trust me will be rewarded in heaven. And so John sent these disciples to Jesus, I think, to be, to be assured and not ashamed of the one that Jesus was pre- that John himself was preaching about. John said, go to this Jesus. Don't be offended. Don't be ashamed. Go and find out for yourself through my question to him who he was. John did not want his disciples to live in doubt over what he had taught them. And I think John was teaching them one last lesson to trust Jesus, have confidence in who he is. Now, many in this room, and I'm going to say those who are listening to the podcast, we record this every Sunday. Many of us wrestle with doubt. And I know some of us are wrestling with doubt. Perhaps you've heard the gospel your whole life and perhaps you're, or maybe, maybe you're just a new convert to Christ. 
Wherever your walk with the Lord is, if you're a new, if, if you've been walking with the Lord for a long time, or if you're a new convert to Christ, or you're not a Christian whatsoever, Christians will doubt their salvation. They may doubt the sincerity of who Christ is. I think this passage is appropriate for us. It's appropriate for every Christian. A non-believer reading this will say, well, who? I don't care who Jesus is. Why should I doubt him? I don't care. But a Christian will read these words and say, wow, that's me. Let me encourage you, let me encourage us all that these words of Christ show us that doubt is the reality of the believer. Doubt can be often the reality of our faith. Not to be afraid of it. And I think Jesus is not afraid of our doubt, so we shouldn't be either. (laughs) Doubt is an aspect of the faithful. If Jesus saw doubt as a sin, I think he would have responded to John and his disciples as such. But he doesn't. When he hears their doubt, he reminds them of the truth of who he is. That's an opportunity for Christ to love us deeper. It's an opportunity for us to depend on him more. That's what doubt does. That's why God allows it to continue. So anyone who is legalistic, who says, if you doubt Jesus, you're not saved, I would say if you doubt Jesus, there's got to be some hint of trust there or you would have never doubted. Trust me. So here's, here's, my, here's my thought for us all. Doubt requires an origin of faith in order to question. How can you doubt if you don't believe? If you, if you didn't believe in Jesus Christ, if you didn't believe in His atoning sacrifice for you on that cross, then what do you have to doubt? Take comfort, Christian, that if you are in this season, you're in a good place. You're in a good place. And Jesus is right there with you. And He's responding with comfort and compassion. And he'll, he'll take every opportunity that he can to remind every one of us who he is. That's who Jesus, that's, that's what he does. Now if that means going back to the prophets of old to remind us who the one to come was going to be, he'll do that. And he'll remind us of what he does. Remember his actions in, in verse 1 of chapter 11. He goes on teaching and preaching in their cities, reminding them of who he is from the scriptures. And as he works and as he ministers, Jesus is healing and prophesying and and bringing people from the dead and teaching them and telling them who he is and the kingdom of heaven is now and the kingdom of the future one to come is still coming and you have more hope yet to come. Wow. Jesus will remind us of that every chance he gets. So Christian, don't fear doubt. It's okay. My counsel is merely allow the doubt to turn your minds to Christ. If you, if you, if your mind is full of doubt, allow that doubt to turn your hearts to Christ again and again and again and again. 
Allow your Savior and Lord to guide you through this season of doubt. That's what He's there for. Allow Jesus to love you in this moment and allow Him to remind you of why He loved you from the beginning. That's what doubt does. I would encourage you also to follow the lead of Jesus here. If you are in a season of doubt, turn to the promises made in the prophets that foretold of the one to come. Go to God's Word. Even go to Romans chapter 8. I didn't refer to that. That's a different conversation because that's, that's doubt of salvation. John's not doubting salvation. He's doubting, Jesus, are you the one I was supposed to preach about? That's a different category of thinking. So we didn't need to go to Romans chapter 8, but if you need to, Romans chapter 8 reminds us <laughs> assurance of salvation is good, but to be assured, sometimes doubt shores up the assurance. I would say, lastly, turn to the hope of eternal life. I've had the privilege of reading C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity again recently. I read it first time when I was in college, and boy, it was like over here, over the head. And I thought, what in the world did I just read? And I just reread it recently. And, and C.S. Lewis has a great section in that work. Uh, if you've never read Mere Christianity, I encourage every Christian to pick up a copy. He has a section in there about hope. And part of being a real Christian, and that's what the book is about, how to know that you're a real Christian, what a real Christian must believe. And hope must be central to the Christian reality. Hope, not only in Christ who saves us, but hope in heaven restored. That hope of a time and a place when no more doubt and no more anxiety will exist is part of the Christian life. Allow doubt to remind you that we have hope when there will be no more doubt. Amen? So Christian, love Jesus. And please do not doubt that He loves you too. And please do not doubt that He is who He is. He's the one who preaches the gospel to the poor. And He brings sight to the blind. And He brings salvation to the damned. Wow. Let's pray. Father God, You've given us much to ponder today. And dear God, as Your prophets of old proclaimed that there would be one to come, I pray, God, that you would remind us here this morning of who did come. Jesus Christ, your Son, the Savior of us all, is the one that you promised. And he fulfilled every ounce, every moment, every deed, exactly as you prophesied that he would. But dear God, we are not perfect as your Son is perfect and we are still, even though many in this room are redeemed from our sin and we are made new in your Son, many of us in this room struggle. And so, God, I pray that you would ease our doubts. 
that you would use this time to draw us closer to you, that you would use any anxiety and, and doubt of who Jesus is as times to strengthen in our minds exactly who we know he is. Dear God, there are some in this room and there are some who are listening on podcasts who do not know your son, Jesus Christ, and so they don't understand what doubt is, really. They may have skepticism, but they have no doubts because there's nothing to doubt. They have no faith. And so, God, I would pray that you would use your word to remind them that there is one to come, that they will meet someday if their faith would just embrace Christ. So God, I pray as our hymn earlier today said, allow your Holy Spirit to stir up within those who have no faith. Draw them with faith to your Son, Jesus Christ. Please. And for those of us who know your Son, who feel like we have failed Him, God, comfort us with your word and remind us that Jesus is who he is and remind us to trust that. And so, dear God, I pray that you would use this moment for your kingdom and for your glory. Please speak into the hearts of all who are listening and draw them to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.